Find your feet with the Find Your Feet podcast. Hi guys, welcome to another episode of the Find Your Feet podcast. Can you believe it? We're up to episode 22. I can't believe that it's been nearly one year since we launched. So thanks to all the listeners who've been tuning into each of these episodes. And if you've missed some of the good ones, maybe you might like to look back and download these as well. Okay, so today's guest is Chris Price. Chris moved to Hobart a few months ago and I met him at my Find Your Feet store in Hobart. There are some people when you sort of meet them where you just think, I need to get to know this person better. And that's what Chris did for me. In fact, the thought that I had was, I need to go on a run with him and show him his new backyard. But it was actually Chris who ended up reaching out to me, offering to help in any way that he could. Because at the moment, he's a stay-at-home father while he supports his wife to launch her medical career. And Chris had reached out and said, this is who I am and this is what I could potentially help with. When I read his very humble email, I thought, wow, I don't just need to go for a run with this guy. I've got to get him on the podcast. See, Chris comes from a background of co-founding Stair Running Australia. And that was after he'd only just got into the sport himself. Since then, he's gone on to have a relatively international career in the sport of stair running. I was fascinated to know how he psychologically dealt with the pain of stair running and how he also managed the pressure, not from just being an athlete, but also being a coach and someone co-founding Stair Running Australia. Now, for those of you who don't know, but as part of Find Your Feet and the business that I operate that supports our podcast today, we also have a tour business. Now our tours sell out incredibly fast and I just wanted to let the listeners know that there is one tour still operating in 2018 that has four places left. This is a tour to my homeland of Tasmania, in fact the alpine regions of Tasmania, in April this year. And in April in Tasmania the mountains are aglow with autumn colours and we're going to be taking you to some of the most beautiful sections of the state, including the famous Cradle Mountain. So... If you're interested in coming along, jump on the website, findyourfeettours.com.au and check it out. All right, let's get into the podcast with Chris Price. Chris, thanks for sitting down with me today on the Find Your Feet podcast. That's a pleasure, honey. Thanks for having me. Yeah, now I know you think this is a little bit surreal and that I've asked you to come on the podcast, but you know, we had an amazing evening the other night when I came around to your place to sort of look at how you um, how you work, how you operate, how you think, and I definitely came away with a lot of ideas and new, new thoughts that I'm really looking forward to exploring. Mm. But before we kind of get into your work philosophies, I was wondering if you could put yourself back into Chris the Athlete's shoes Take me back a little bit to maybe one of the events. Um, so you come from a stair running background, mm-hmm. as I understand. So take me back to one of those events that really sparks your imagination. And can you walk us through what a stair running event is like from before you even arrive at the event through to, I guess, the end of it and the results that follow? Yeah, sure. Um, it's been a couple of years since I've actually competed, so uh, thinking back to a particular race uh, might take me a few minutes, but just the, the races in general, um, there was always a buzz, even before I got on the plane. 
Um, Melbourne has just the one race. Um, so certainly racing within Australia had to fly to the other capital cities. But um, I got so much pleasure out of knowing that I was going to a race. You know, I had a really good training partner and we just clicked massively. So the idea that we were both getting away was sort of a bit of a trip um, away from the normalities of life and we were going to race against each other, against ourselves and against you know, other stair climbers within Australia and sometimes internationally they'd come to Australia. It's a fair way away for a lot of Europeans in the US. But um, look, Perth, travelling to Perth is probably one of the the bigger races for me. Um, I grew up in WA so it was nice to go back and uh, yeah, you know, the, the climate, the, um, the conditions of the stairwell was always testing. Um, so, you know, it might be a nice balmy or mild day outside, but if it was a hot day the previous day or there'd been a lot of traffic in the stairwell um, the day before just from colleagues uh, of that, oh, not colleagues, sorry, um, employees of the building, then, you know, the stuffiness and the atmosphere in the stairwell, um, yeah, can be a little challenging. So there was all that, always that apprehension and excitement about what, what the conditions were going to be like. Uh, you were always trying to remember, okay, last year there was five flights that went two flights per floor and you were travelling to your right and then all of a sudden you go on a landing and you go to your left. Or, you know. So there's all this going through your head, you know, trying to work out what the, the outlay of the stairwell was again. Mm-hmm. Uh, we often made notes and would always refer back to them from our previous um, races. So travelling on the, on the flights together and, you know, talking about what our strategies were and um, with our training, how we thought we were going to go and then, yeah, the anticipation of, of you know, were, was this this the, the race that I was going to take that one step further on the podium? Um, and then, you know, the race is over in six minutes and you're like, wow, I've just travelled four hours for six minutes and <laughs> now I'll go go home. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's epic. Six minutes. I remember being a sprint freestyler and you do you know, six months of training specifically for this one race and if you miss the start you know, the starter's gun, then it was pretty much all over. Yeah. yeah. So that's like a 29, well, 27 second race. So I, I hear, I empathize. <laughs> but take me through then what the actual race is like. So how how it works, because I think a lot of us are really actually quite unfamiliar and naive about mm. stair running. And I know that it is in an enormous global sport now mm. with a lot of prize money, because I've actually had a couple of friends who've been involved in it. Um, in Asia particularly Mm. but can you talk us through what goes through your body and your mind as you go through the actual stair race itself yeah certainly Um, I get very nervous before a race because I know the intensity that you have to work at in a a stair race and that's always something that makes me very nervous Um, but it's that nervousness and intensity that also excites me and always brought me back so Getting up to the start line, you know, I used to slap my muscles just to try and stimulate them and, you know, that bit of pain and sensation would also, um, you know, maybe snap me out of, you know, mentally what I was feeling and, and the Perth race, that, if I use that as an example, is a, is a mass start. 
so wow. there's there's mass start races and then there's interval races where you go off each individual goes off in say a 30 second interval what's the world championship um i haven't been to the world championship uh, but I believe that is a, a timed race. Okay. I believe it's a timed race. Um, so mass start, you must have a lead-in distance before you hit the stairwell? Yeah, so it varies. Um, sometimes it's right at the stairwell. Sometimes it's 15 metres back. You know, if if it's not a mass start and it's not an intervals-based um, race, you know, you might have the, the top three seated go off together and then the next three seated go off together. So it's still timed, but you've also got other competitors around you mm-hmm. so you know change you've got a mindset change depending on the start of the race because if you've got people around you then you're not only working against yourself you're working yeah. against them yeah but if it's an interval race then essentially you're the only one in the stairwell for a couple of flights you can probably hear steps or breathing behind you you might be able to hear steps or breathing ahead of you but you're essentially working against yourself so that that really changes or yeah, challenges your your psyche in terms of how you push yourself through the race, what your motivations Absolutely. are, how you get yourself going. Yeah. Um, but yeah, when when you start the race, you know there's this real nervousness, and, and and a lot of the times, even with the people that followed us through Stair Climbing Australia, we always said, do not go out guns blazing because you will ruin yourself in the first couple of uh, flights. So that was always in our mind as well. You know, keep start off with the rhythm. You know, and you'll learn how your body feels, how you, you know, what your legs are feeling like. Uh, and from that, you'll then be able to determine, okay, for the next 10 flights, for the next five floors, can I push myself a bit harder? Do I stay in this rhythm because I you know, I'm feeling a bit sluggish and need to really reserve some energy for later on? Um, you know, one of the things we found out with all of our experiments that we did in training is that we can run or we can ascend stairs faster yeah, with a um, a walking, a fast walk, a oh, rhythmic walk, wow. than actually running. So if you run, you'll find that you, you'll deplete all your energy stores. Lactic will be that, will be through the roof. You'll be burning and you'll actually slow down to a point where you're travelling slower than your walk. So does that mean that you never, you actually never run in an elite competition, you yourself? Oh, uh, I do. Um, yeah, okay. You know, you want to talk about some of the real elite of the sport. Um, Mark Bourne, who we've mentioned before, mm-hmm. you know, he was he's amazing. He will run the whole way. Um, and for me, I was a specialist in the shorter races. So races varied between 30 floors and 87 floors of the Eureka Tower, which is if I stay within Australia. Um, and I was uh, physiologically on better off on the shorter races. So I would run... And a lot of us would run those. They, they were an all-out sprint. So you think of sprinting on the track, that's essentially what we do. It's raw speed, just straight up the stairs. You use mm-hmm. your arms to slingshot yourself around the, the flights, if depending on where the handrail is. You know, do you have two handrails? Do you have one handrail? Um, and then, yeah, you just, I guess, shut your eyes and just go. <laughs> so go do you it. have a massive heart like engine so you have really high heart rate big vo2 or is it about how much you can suffer through the discomfort of that yeah um everyone comes to the sport with their different attributes me i always felt that um pushing through pain was a harder thing for me um and that my engine 
And my VO2 is not massive compared to some of the other guys, but it's certainly, well, I feel quite large. So my engine was quite big. Um, what figure do you have on your VO2 out of curiosity? Uh, when I mean? measured it, um, I think it's almost seven years ago now, it was at 62. Okay. And I feel that um, I'm, I've increased that now, but I haven't, I haven't gone back and tested yeah. it. So to put that into perspective, I think Mark's is around 73. Yikes. Yeah, yeah, so that's getting up there for, yeah. So I think some, you know, I know more about women, but people... Um, who some of the women who are the top cyclists, track cyclists, um, it's a pretty amazing to have a VO2 greater than 70. Guys yeah. generally sit higher, but into the 74s is getting pretty yeah. pretty good for a trained male. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so, so you mentioned like you weren't sure whether your ability to suffer pain was as good as other people. So describe what that pain is actually like in a stair race <laughs> because I think coming – Coming from an ultra and, and more trail distance background, um, even the marathon, when I was a marathon runner, I don't think the pain would be anything like the intense burning that I'm guessing mm. happens in those stair races. Yeah. with a, I mean, I often think with a running race, you know, you can just slow your pace ever so slightly and, you know, you might be able to get a bit of a reprieve and then you exactly. can push again. But in a stairwell, when one, when you're against the clock and we're talking milliseconds seconds that separate people um to you're going against gravity so even if you slow down your muscles are still working essentially as hard to try and push your body weight up these stairs so yes slowing down gives you a reprieve and and takes some of the intensity away but your legs are still burning because the body's still trying to pump out the toxins that are being built up hydrogen ions that are you know being uh, created by your cells that are causing this burning sensation um so that was one aspect of it and you know you you think of the the muscles involved in climbing stairs so your your quads your glutes your calves you know you can change your foot position so you can either land on your toes or your heel depending on the depth of the step so there's some relief from the calf perspective um but certainly quads and and um and glutes yeah on fire and we're talking on fire within the first couple of floors um, and then it's just trying to maintain it. But the other aspect of it is, from a pain perspective, is is what we call track ha- uh, hack, I think it is. It's referred to maybe in the track field. But, you know, the stairwells have a dust. Mm. Um, you know, they're concrete steps. They don't get cleaned that often. We might have been lucky if a stairwell was cleaned for us before a race. Mm. You know, someone had to obviously go in there with a brush and <laughs> climb the steps and sweep it. But, um, yeah, with all the body heat and the the, um, the warmer air, uh, you know, really, and, and you're breathing that hard, that the force of the air going in through your lungs and out can start to, you know, cause minute tears in the tissue. So, you know, your throat and lungs can really be sore and you can, as soon as you finish a race and you sort of, the body settles down a bit, you can have coughing fits. Wow. So it doesn't sound... Very healthy. Yeah, yeah. You're not making it sound <laughs> really, really appealing to no. me. Really, <laughs> I guess I'm not, am I? Um, yeah. So, though, in terms of the pain, they're the two two aspects that really right really played. So, how did you train? If you knew that pain tolerance was one of your, let's call it weaknesses for now, did you train for that, or did you just 
go through the physical motions of training and by doing that become better at tolerating the pain and discomfort? Uh, a bit of both. I mean, I, when we trained, and this is um, going back to when I first started in the sport, we we just smashed ourselves in the stairwell. So as a result of that, we were putting ourselves through so much pain and we would rejoice in that pain. <laughs> we would think, you know, that was an awesome session. We were hurting so much. And it was much easier having a training partner. There was times there when, if I you know, speak about my training partner, you know, we couldn't couldn't train together and we'd be texting each other, I got in the stairwell today, how do you go? And when you're on your own, the pain is so much worse um, because you haven't got that other person motivating you. So we did focus on pain specifically, or I did. When I'm in this session, I'm like, you know, I'm hurting, but I need to, to get used to this more so, especially when I started out. Um, because I was starting out with someone who had already been in the um, stair racing scene for a while, so he was used to it. Um, and to the other aspect, yeah, we did um, train to improve our performance, and as a result, pain was just some, a byproduct of what we were doing. So just getting familiar with it without focusing on it was also another aspect of yeah, how our training progressed. And then when you're actually in the, the midst of one of those races and that you're sort of more than halfway up and that pain is becoming unbearable, did you have anything that you did psychologically to help the pain, like mantras or things like that, or was it just literally gritting your teeth and getting to the top? Uh, a lot of grit, a lot of grit. Uh, but, yeah, there'd be things like I, whatever rhythm I'd in, I'd find, you know, two two lines to a song or I'd listen to my breathing and I'd, I'd breathe in and out to the steps so that it became monotonous and I was able to focus in on that um, just to sort of black out everything mm. else that was that my body was telling me. Um, so, yeah, uh, it was hard, but that was the main thing. It was just trying to black it out. So how would I do that? Focus on breath, focus on steps try not to look at the, the numbers on the doors to know where I was, um, so to lose myself in the mm, space. Okay. Um, yeah, because if, you know, if you look up and find that you've only gone 15 floors and you've got another 82 or 72 to go, you know, it, the emotions all come rushing back and go, oh, gosh, how, yeah. I'm feeling like this now and I've still got two-thirds of the race to go. So there was that aspect. But, yeah, certainly just blacking yourself out. That's so true. That happens in, I think, so many sports where there is a pain element. You know, I'm thinking about the marathon where you get to 10K and you think, how am I going to run another 32? Yeah. Or in a 100K ultra and you get to 50 and you think, how am I going to do that again? And the way that I actually um, taught myself to overcome that, and I've also taught this to some of the people that I've coached, is to always imagine that halfway is actually like around three quarters of the distance or like at a certain point that I know of along the course, like an aid station that's coming up. But um, so that, you know, you might have run 70 kilometres already and that's your halfway mark and it makes the back half feel really short. Mm. And that was something that I used to like definitely do. So you try and enter a bubble until you get to that point. And that was kind of when I could come out of the bubble and start to like more focus in on the process after that point. So... Yeah, so I, it's actually really interesting that you actually brought that up. Um, so, what are the what would have been the highlight of your stair running career? Do you think? Um, 
I think there's a race in Boston that I did when I went over um, to the US. Um, I had raced Empire State Building the week before and I had a terrible race. Like, uh, um, in fact, I don't even really want to talk about it, but um, yeah, I had a, had a shocking experience. Um, I'd, r- I'd run the Eureka race, uh, sorry, the Empire State Building, so that was one of the goals that I had, but it was just, I did, yeah. I came away from it going, you know, I, I performed really badly. And um, thankfully, the following week, there was a race up in Boston that I went up to, and it was a shorter race, so it was certainly one that uh, was more suited to me, and I ended up podium, uh, finishing on the podium for that yeah, one. Wow. And with all the lead-up and maybe lack of training and going to the US with uh, a six, no, 22-month-old daughter, my daughter at that stage, you know, visiting family, there was this tug of war between enjoying New York um, and the States, uh, but also trying to stay within that athlete zone that, you know, I've trained to a certain extent. I want to make sure while I'm over here I perform well. So um, to come away with with that finish, um, yeah, was really pleasing and it actually yeah, made the rest of the trip quite, quite enjoyable. <laughs> Get that adrenaline kick. So without talking about that race, what you know, what was the lesson that you took away that then transpired in a podium result in the next time round after the Empire State? Um, I, don't, I think the pressure off from the Empire State was gone. Like, um, you know, I shouldn't have even been at the Empire State building probably. Why but, do you say that? Uh, I won't go into it. I, I'm sorry, but yeah, no, I won't talk about no, that. No, that's good. But, that's um, yeah, I probably shouldn't have been there, um, but I but I raced, and yeah, there was so much pressure. Like it's the mecca. Like if if there wasn't the world champs, that is mm. the race. You know, it's invitational. Um, the best of the best get asked. There's thirty of the world's best stair climbers or sky runners there. Wow. You're in this massive auditorium or um, you know foyer. You're all elbowing and you've got to get through this 80 centimetre door. Oh. And this is one where it's not against time. It's just whoever gets to the top. And it's minus four, five, six outside. And you get into the stairwell and it's like 20 degrees. So in terms of warming up and, you know, that ch- stark change in um, atmosphere, it's, it's crazy. And, you know, I was, I was dressed for the minus four, not for the 20. So... Um, yeah, you can understand maybe how I was feeling in the stairwell. Yeah, gosh. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, so the, the pressure and I guess, yeah, just removing all of that from my mind and then going up and focusing on this race where there wasn't as much focus on it, even from the stair climbing world. Um, I went up there and met a guy that, uh, from the U S who, you know, we'd sort of conversed over the internet for a while you know he had a blog and was coming uh sort of narrating his story through stair climbing we had stair climbing australia so you know we were back and forth with articles and tips on training and so it was nice to catch up with some people that um you know we'd been talking to over the internet mm. and yeah, it was a much more fun atmosphere it was much more relaxed um and you know i went up by myself i caught the train um and apologies to my family but you know when you when you leave them behind and you can just focus on yourself and have some time to yourself you know often yeah i find that i perform better yeah 
Because I think, you know, you have to find that zone and that probably leads me to the next question is like for you, where does pressure come from? Because I know for myself, pressure is very, very much something that comes from within me. It's like even with external pressure, you know, is she going to win? Is this record going to get broken? You know, all all of the sort of hype that can happen. And for me, still the hardest pressure to overcome is from me, mm. like deep within me. Yeah, the pressure for me was certainly internal. There was some aspect of it externally because I was a co-founder of Stair Climbing Australia and yeah. I you know, was writing articles, I was putting out training programs, people were coming to me for uh, myself and my um, co-founder and training partner for advice. So I sort of had that expertise and I was always at the races, I was always competing, I'd sort of you know, finish bridesmaid, fourth or top fifth, top five you know, in most of the races. So. Um, there was always that expectation from a lot of people that, oh, yeah, I wonder how Chris goes. Mm. But it wasn't to the extent that you're talking about, nowhere near. So the predominant pressure uh, for me was was internally. I was like, I wanted to prove that I was able to do this. Yeah. And often that resulted in a lot of um, negative thoughts coming out of races. Like if I go back to Perth, I had one of the words, and we forget empire, but... Perth, I had, you know, you have all this preparation, you, you pay all this money to fly over to Perth, and then I think I ran a really bad 748 or something, you know, up 62 flights or something, and and I was expecting that, I had this pressure on myself that I would win because Darren Wilson wasn't going to be there, Mark Bourne wasn't going to be there, um, and Adam, my training partner, wasn't there. So I'm like, these are the three guys that had been beating me throughout all my career. And I'm like, they're not there, so it's my time. And, you know, I, I can't put it down to what, what was wrong, but this person just came out of the woodwork and just and beat me by 20 seconds or something. And it was just, it just shattered me. <laughs> yeah. But you talk, talk quite candidly about, because um, I was going to get to your role in establishing Stair Climbing Australia. So, you know, you weren't just an athlete. You were someone who was giving back voluntarily a lot to the sport and mm. helping to develop the sport in Australia. Mm. And then, you, like you say, you were coaching and looking after other athletes. And that, that does bring a huge amount of pressure. And I know that in Australia particularly, there are a lot of athletes who, you know, have found that they're quite um, good at, at sport, particularly in trail running, which is quite a new industry in Australia, um, and that are moving into the coaching sport coaching world but I think that combination of being an athlete coach and then for you as well that responsibility of stair climbing Australia that that's enormous pressure to carry because I think I mean even if it's not true I think our brains do start to go you know how is this going to reflect on my ability to coach how does this reflect on my management management skills in stair climbing Australia if I have a bad performance did your brain ever put those two together or not necessarily? No, not necessarily. Okay. No. Yeah, okay. No. Um, you know, regardless of, of what I did in the stairwell within the race personally, yeah, I don't I didn't think of it as having any effect on, okay. on stair climbing That's interesting. Australia. Yeah. yeah. No, there was no Sadly no my brain tries to make that equation <laughs> all the time, but I think more and more I've sort of become able to um, sort of reason with that little like imp sitting on my shoulder having that chat with me, but um, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, well, and, the good thing for me was that I had a co-founder who was 
much better, well, yeah, much better in the sport than me. So he was the one that was finishing first or second. And um, he was always the one, and I was quite happy for him to do this. He was always the one in front of the cameras when they wanted to speak to someone from Stair Climbing Australia or on the radio. Um, He has the looks and the voice for for those media. So what was your responsibility with Stair Climbing Australia? I was sort of behind the scenes. Um, You know, we sort of understood where our strengths lies, and I was the one that built the website, um, managed all the all the admin side of things. Um, you know, we both wrote articles. We both, you know, took the photos and created the training plans, but I looked after the admin side of things. And, right. And Adam was the um, more of the face. Okay. And, you know, we took our responsibilities where it was needed. But Yeah. yeah. It was a good combination. And this, this came around the time when you were working as a graphic designer? Yeah, so the actual, I guess, reason for me falling into the sport of stair climbing was the fact that I was working as a graphic designer uh, in a 52-storey building <laughs> and uh, met Adam at a, at a party through mutual friends um, and we were both living in Geelong at that time and he was talking about coming from Canberra because he was in the mountain running scene and these guys uh, were using stair climbing as a sort of extra training uh, method and he, he'd done a couple of races, the Rialto Tower, and that was still around back in the day. And yeah, we got chatting and he was talking about the fact that he couldn't get specificity with his training. So he was really struggling to progress in his in the stairwell because he just didn't have access to stairs to the length that our races, because, um, you know, we're, we're running in environments where they're designed for evacuation. Mm. Um, they're not specific for stair climbing races. So access to them, especially after 9-11, became pretty tough. Yeah. Uh, Australia was a little bit more laxed, so um, but still he wasn't he wasn't able to get into. So I was like, well, I was at a crossroads with my where I wanted to go with my physical uh, pursuits, and sort of well, I'll, I'll join you for a couple of training sessions, and I said I'll speak to building management and I'll see if we can get in, and they said yep, yeah, no dramas. So I'm like, all right, off we go up on the train, and the 52 stories took me 50 uh, sorry 15 minutes in my first go, and it was hell. But at the end of it, when we were panting and collapsed on the floor, I was like, I had this buzz. Like <laughs> these endorphins had just been released. And I was like, oh my goodness, I want to do that again. Like it was really weird. Like I just smashed myself. I was exhausted. I was obliterated. Yet my body was saying, hey, that was cool. Let's do it again. And a lot of people, when they speak to us as Stair Climbing Australia or you know, when they come up and chat to us and they're learning about the sport, they're like, you've got, you've got to screw loose. <laughs> like you're, you're nuts and we're like yeah well look we are to, to do what we do um, you need to have a bit of a screw loose um, because yeah sometimes it's mental but um, yeah that's what got me hooked and then yeah from then on you know we travelled up on the train every Tuesday and Thursday and did our sessions in the stairwell and we did that on and off uh, well essentially week in week out for maybe three or four years and that's what grew the bond and uh, after a little while, we thought, you know, let's let's blog about this. And so we started blogging about ah, it. This is cool. what we did in the stairwell. This is the training sessions. Adam would always come up with the training plans. Um, you know, he's been a, a movement coach and PT for for years, so he was much better suited to it. I, I, was, I was still a graphic designer. I was just learning about um, fitness and my body and so forth. So he'd come up with the training plans. We'd post about them. These were our times, and then... People just started following it. It was weird. And then we're like, actually, we're on something here. Let's 
let's create something out of it. Because we knew there was all these races in Australia, but they were all individual. Yeah. And there was no one body that sort of united all of them. And we thought, well, let's do that. And so we started promoting it and advertising about the races, you know, getting more participants to travel and getting sort of a group of, of people that would follow us and, and we'd catch up at the races and we end up getting shirts made and, you know, started a little sort of posse, I guess you could call it, a group of, of Stair Climbing Australia athletes. Um, and, you know, we then got to this point where we're like, wow, this could be amazing, you know, we could really turn this. We were talking to some of the event organisers about getting Foxtel on board and creating a points race within Australia and having it televised because, you know, we could use, with some of the races, the internal um, security cameras as footage and that, but it never got off the ground. There was always this possibility of what it could be, but it never eventuated. But Stair Climbing Australia still exists, even though you've made the transition to Hobart in Tasmania. No? so no, it, it's, does, it doesn't wow. exist. So yeah, okay. that's the really disappointing thing for Adam and I. You know, we put seven or eight years of our life uh, into this and built it from the ground up to something that was could have really taken off. If we had the time and the money to put into it, because at this stage we were, we were at a loss, we were... You know, you have to pay for your own flights, certainly to get to races. And stair climbing is not a participation, uh, a spectator sport. So mm. there's no real sponsorship because yeah. there's no advertising benefit for people. So it was all pay your own way and the prize money reflected that. There was hardly any. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were doing it just out of the love of it. And that's why we thought, you know, we could change change this, change the scene of stair climbing in Australia, you know. There's, as you mentioned before, in Asia, in Europe, in the US, where it's a lot bigger because of the populations and the amount of buildings they've got over there. Um, you know, it's a lot more professional. Um, I'd say we're still more elite because if you think of who's been at the top of stair climbing in, in the world for the last four or five years, it's all Australians. Mm. Alice Mack, Susie Walshman, Darren... Wilson. Why do you think that is? I've got no idea. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's because, um, you know, Australia, the sporting scene being a little smaller, the really good athletes, it's easier for them to cross over between different sports. Um, I don't know. And with stair climbing, the other thing is, you know, the older you get, you can still get better. Like there's um, some guys that are, there was a guy, Sproul Love, I think from the US who was in his fifties and still winning races because Why? even though, you know, it's quite an intense sport, the impact on your body, the physical impact on your body is quite minimal. You're going upstairs. So there's no um, increased force from running downstairs. You don't do that. Um, you know, you're often at a fast walk or slow jog in terms of your pace. So the impact on the joints and everything is quite minimal. So physically, people can run stairs for a long time, um, you know, in their life. So as you get older, we know endurance tends to increase. Um, and for the longer races, you know, people can um, continue to be successful. So that might be a reason why. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, and and the like you've mentioned Mark Bourne's name a couple of times, but he's had huge success in the mountain running scene as well. Mm. Um, so an incredible athlete. I think definitely you're right that I think athletes, though, in a smaller pool, 
um, it sounds like can spend more time racing against one another and feed off one another. Yeah. And we noticed that in orienteering in Oceania, so in the Australian New Zealand district, that when we started to get a couple of good athletes, we tended to build more good athletes quicker mm. um, because we were sort of always watching over our shoulders of what other people were doing and you know that crossed over between men and women as well like the women would get a lot of inspiration from the men and vice versa mm. so that's really interesting so so if that is your stair running ex- experience and I, I think it's correct to say that at the moment that's on hold since the move to Tasmania Oh yeah. <laughs> what so? What are the aspirations now? Because obviously you still have a big engine, and then I think probably got aspirations to go other places with sport. Yeah. So um, yeah, in coming to in coming to Hobart and Tassie, um, I knew that the tallest building you had was the casino, which was seventeen floors. It's so. not very big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'd still love to get back to stair climbing, but yes, it is on it is on hold, and I knew that. Uh, Hobart had this amazing back, uh, you know, backyard, this Mount Wellington, you know, 1.07, whatever, um, kilometres yeah. of dirt. Yeah. You know, and for a stair climber, you know, when I drive around wherever I am, I'm looking at mountains going, oh, how steep is that? And I wonder how fast I could run up it. So that was just, that's my mentality. So, you know, when I've come to Hobart previously, it's amazing. I love it. It's one of the only capital cities where, you know, you drive in from the airport and you can just see Mount Wellington just looming over the um, the city and it just, I don't know, gets me excited. And every time I look at it and go, oh, it'd be awesome if there was a track just up that bit there near the organ pipes or something because it looks really steep. Um, so, yeah, I, I knew sort of what I was getting myself into. I hadn't really done much trail running previously. There might have been a couple of races here and there at it. Um, the Yu Yangs, which is quite flat compared to here, yeah. um, just out of Geelong, and uh, the Dandenongs, which were like a two-hour fight against traffic to get there, so we never went there. So, um, yeah, it was sort of this excitement about getting into something new, but I'd always, I've always been an outdoors person, you know, growing up, whether it be on the farm or on the beach, we're always outside. So getting outdoors was something that really excited me especially after being in the confines of a stairwell for, mm. for a long time of my um you know racing days so uh i thought with the attributes that i'd been able to build within stair climbing you know um the strength in the legs and the engine that i thought you know trail running might be something because i was always as younger naturally good runner i did little athletics and you know i was a quite a good track runner back in the day so um i thought well it's probably a good combination mm. of things to 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 get into it and you know I didn't start out thinking that I'm now going to make trail running a profession or I'm going to become elite in it um and I'm by no means there anyway so it was more just being able to get out there and enjoy it uh and try something new and yeah I, I haven't looked back you know it's been amazing and I know there's so many more trails that I haven't yet explored but there's a few that I'm quite familiar with when I do get the opportunity to get out and run up the up the mountain. So I got here in Feb last year um, and sort of spent last year just getting familiar with the trails, running on trails, running downhill, because that's one thing that in stairs, you know, you only run up and then you catch the lift down. Um, so learning the technique of running downhill, um, allowing my body to adapt to the forces that are mm. Posed uh, against the body when you do run downhill, you know the technical aspect of trail running. So yeah, I've spent the last nine months just honing in on my skills and 
2018 is when I'm going to hopefully yeah, put all that together to create a complete package and see how I go. So in that, you're talking about patience in your progression into the sport of trail running and recognising, because I'm, I'm sure that with the engine that you have, that if you wanted to, you could just go out and probably run fairly endlessly for a period of time. Whereas it sounds like you're putting a bit of a brake or a handbrake on that so that you can allow that body to adapt. And obviously the the method of or the, the reason you're doing that is to prevent injury. Is that correct? Mm. I've been pretty lucky. Um, I haven't really ever had a soft tissue injury um, throughout all the sports that I've participated in. Uh, and I am conscious um, of making sure that my body stays healthy and um, injury-free. You know, I'm not... I'm not getting any younger, but by no means do I think I'm getting old. Mm. Um, I, I think of myself or my age in biological terms, not chronological terms. <laughs> um, so I think I've got a lot left in me and I'm, I'm getting better. Like I'm, I'm really surprised with how well I'm now running and, you know, my times and so forth. Um, if we want to talk about metrics, you know, getting faster. So I'm setting myself PBs now that I would have never thought possible you know, five years ago. Um, and part of that patience is also getting kilometres in the leg. So, you know, earlier in this podcast, I was talking about races being between six and, and ten minutes long. You know, I, um, I'm certainly, you know, marathons and, and half marathons don't necessarily um, excite me. I'm still, I still like it short, fast and loud, if I can use that as a term. Um, <laughs> So, you know, uh, just building kilometres in the legs because I find in some of the races that I have um, or fun runs that I've participated in on the trails, you know, I get to a certain point and I was like, wow, I was feeling amazing, but I'm now 13Ks into an 18K course and I'm dead. <laughs> so I'm feeling great until this point and then I'm like, okay, I still need to work on building a, a longer or bigger engine for these longer races. So. so if you're talking about physiological changes there, but has the psychology changed as well? Like. Some people who come from the shorter distances find, say, going for long runs is one of their hardest sessions of the week, or do you find that more enjoyable or as enjoyable? I find it amazingly therapeutic, mm -hmm. and this probably introduces another aspect of my life in that trail running for me now has been a chance for me to just reset everything because I'm a stay-at-home dad. And when you're, you know, day in, day out, um, having fun with your, my two little girls, um, just getting out on the trails is a chance for me to block everything out and just have time to myself. And, you know, I've amazed myself. I haven't run, you know, there's, there's times when I've gone out to go for a run and I'm like, oh, you know, I've gone with someone who's an ultra marathoner and they're like, oh, I'm going out for 30Ks today. I'm like, oh, I'll come with you. And then by the end, I'm like, I just ran 30K. Mm. I've never run 30k in my life, you know, collect, you know, in one stint. So um, when I'm out there, you know, the, the distance, the, the k's just tick away and I don't even notice it. Um, you know, I get to a hill and I push and I'm like, wow, oh, that was awesome. You know, when's the next one? And then just sort of meander through the, the rest of the trails and then I get to a downhill and I really find that downhill is awesome. Oh, I love downhill. <laughs> it's quite weird actually that I love downhill after loving going up so much for so long but you know all these like trail running has so many different um 
aspects, and there's so many, so many stimuli coming coming into your body from all sorts of things, whether it's the nature, or you know, running up there the other day. Well, when I say the other day, in August, and it was dead still. And when I say up there, I'm pointing to the mountain. It had snowed, and it was my first time running in snow. And I posted this video on Facebook where it was dead quiet, but you could hear the cracks of the ice on the the branches. And as I'd be running through, they'd hit my, my jacket and they'd burst and there's just this explosion of ice. Like It's those sort of things. Like, I'm not even thinking about what's my heart rate at or how far have I gone or like I'm focusing on, it's like a kid in a candy store with that sort of stuff. And then running downhill in snow, oh, that's even better. Like just sort of skiing a bit and then obviously being conscious of what's underneath the snow because I didn't want to you know, hurt myself. But... Running downhill, I want to do that again, mm. big time. I'm coming. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, what you described for trail running is absolutely everything that I I love about the sport <clears throat> and just the those small experiences and that you have. And my husband and I have spoken about this a couple of times in different podcasts, but we have a little bit of a tradition which is highlight of the day, and it's just a I don't know, it just comes out really naturally now, you know turning to one another as we're heading to bed and saying, you know, what was your highlight for today? And it's often not the things that you think it'll be. Like it's not, oh, I've made it to the top of the mountain on my bike or, um, oh, you know, I had a bit of a win at work. It's always like, oh, did you see the sunrise this morning? Or it was exactly like you're describing that, you know, that sensation of ice hitting your jacket, um, being out on the mountain alone when it's quiet. Just, mm. It's, I think... You know, in an urban environment, we can really isolate ourselves from those experiences. And I think the more you have them, the more rich you you end up feeling in your life. Yeah. Just the little bits. But then, you know, we're talking, talking again, coming back a little bit to what we were on before about needing a little bit of patience and, and building up your base so that you can launch into, you know, your, your mountain running, let's call it career for now, this year in 2018. So I'm kind of interested, like, we're starting to get closer and closer to talking about what you're doing in your working career mm-hmm. as well, but what your views are for you or how you go about recovery, um, particularly knowing that you are a, a dad and a stay-at-home dad and have a lot of responsibility and I'm guessing not a lot of you time to <laughs> dedicate to it. So, yeah, can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, um, Patience is one way of, of I guess, um, describing how I've approached um, you know, my introduction to trail running and, and then how I'm going to progress that, um, what I'm doing into maybe something a little bit more elite, more professional. But the other aspect of it is, you know, I've had to reprioritize and, um, you know, my girls and my wife and what we're doing down here is priority because that's going to set us up for the rest of our lives and ultimately set me up for what I'm able to do as a trail runner. So, um, yeah, there's, there's two sides to that. Um, personally, I, I know that I need to ease myself in, but also I'm restricted from a time perspective. So that's also sort of held me back a little bit. I always think, you know, with how I'm feeling and how I'm running now, you know, imagine if I could do the, the actual training that I, I know uh, I could do and that a, you know, that a professional could do if they had the time. But... Having said that, you know, that's not the end of the world. Um, and what I'm doing is 
He's given me great enjoyment. Um, so I just I do what I can and I fit in with what I can and recovery is a big aspect of that. So um, when I first started in stairs, I mentioned before, you know, I was training as hard as I could and, you know, I was training sometimes two times a day, six days a week, all in gear five. So if we talk about intensities in terms of gears, Gear one's just a walking pace. Gear two is sort of your recovery zone, and then you've got your progression up to gear five, which is maxed out. And I was training gear five all the time, thinking that's what I had to do to to get where I wanted to go. And it wasn't until I changed profession completely, um, did away with the, the sitting down the office job and started focusing on my other interest, which was the human body and performance, and realised that I was ruining myself. The only reason I got through it was because the body, my body at that stage was still really young. And when you're younger, you can tolerate yeah. a lot more. Yeah. Um, and, and that's just not just young in age, but that's young in your period in your athletic mm. journey. Because mm. I, I see that a lot with people who are new into sport particularly in ultras. And I think that there's like a three-year grace window where you can get away with a lot of murder. Um, But after that three years, that's kind of when the niggles stack up if you haven't been kind to yourself. Is that what what you're saying as well? Yeah, yeah, definitely. We've spoke the other night. The body is a brilliant thing and its ability to compensate is amazing. And, yeah, I don't know if there's a a grace period. Um, You maybe have identified it, but... There's certainly going to be a point when if you know if you're continually reinforcing bad movement patterns, something's going to give. The body will get to a point where it's like, I can't do this anymore. It'll show symptoms of pain, little aches, niggles, or something more serious like an injury. Do you think that's just the physical load though? Or do you think that there's a psychological loading in there? Because my, my experience is that um, you can have someone who's only training, let's call it at half throttle, um, but they're working it over full throttle. Um, plus maybe they're a dad or a stay-at-home mom, single parent. I don't know what that is. Um, but it's like the stacking up of stressors can lead to like the ability for the body not to be able to recover. And therefore, like you start to get a sort of degeneration, I guess, of muscle tissues purely Mm. because they can't recover between sessions do do you think that there's that element as well yeah certainly um at the end of the day regardless of whether it's mental emotional or physical it's all stress yeah okay stress has the same um effect on the body that's how i read it so if you're stressed at work and not stressing yourself as much physically it can still have the same detrimental impact when you do actually go and run physically or if you're mentally amazing you're feeling great and you're pushing yourself to the limits you can still have the exact same injuries it's Mm. all about how much stress you're placing on the body and how your body can adapt or recover from it um and yeah as a dad you know there's a lot of stresses that i have you know and talk about how much sleep do i get and you know touch wood it's been pretty good um but you know also you know you know providing an environment for your girls to to flourish um, you know, it takes a lot of energy, a lot of energy. And then asking your body to give more energy to then go and train, um, you know, can sometimes lead you to breaking point. But, you know, I, I know what my triggers are. 
uh, I know when my body is in um, distress. So distress being there's too much stress in the body. I know when my body's in new stress, so there's too much. Oh, you know, there's not enough stress in my body. Mm. Um, you know, there's a balance. You want to get just the right amount of stress to, um, you know, push homeostasis up a little bit further and a little bit further, so you can adapt. So, yeah, I know what my triggers are, and I've learnt that over the years now with with what I've got in, myself involved in. So, you know, having the smarts or the the insights as to okay, what's how's my body feeling today. Um, you know, am I starting to develop a few little mouth ulcers? That's the trigger for me, mm, is okay. when I start... Actually the same. ...getting yeah. mouth ulcers, I know that my body's in distress, and I'm okay. like, okay, what is it that I need to do to, to pull back? Or, yeah, um, that's, that's it for me. So do you have a training plan, or do you read your body and work with your body? I do have a training plan, and, and you're probably silly not to, mm. um, and that comes back to having a purpose. Mm-hmm. So if you have a purpose and then um, from that you're able to develop a plan. Now, my plan, however, is not what people traditionally think what a plan is. You know, Tuesday's this, Wednesday's this, um, Thursday's this. I look at my what I want to achieve and what I need to do to get to that point. Um, so if it's anaerobic endurance, speed sessions or strength, I will create workouts that are going to... Um, improve those areas, but I don't schedule them in. I don't say Mondays this Tuesday because I don't know what my day is going to bring. I just know I have a training session that's designed for speed. I have a training session um, that's designed for um, aerobic endurance, and I will get up in the morning or I look at the week ahead and go, oh, well, my wife's on call at this point. The kids are there. I could get a babysitter for there. So knowing periods of rest that I need between certain um, training sessions, I'll just sort of shuffle them in the week and I go, okay, well, if I can't get one in, which one do I need more work on and which one can I leave out? So it's always juggling that. It's fluid. Yeah. Yeah. So going back a bit again, um, how do you approach the recovery between the sessions? Like actually what does that look like? Recovery is probably the biggest, biggest component of my training program. Um, it's not my term, but um, a lot of other industry experts, you know, talk about there's never overtraining, there's always under recovering, and yeah, you know, I believe that entirely. So, um, yeah, fitting recovery in is more important for me, and and what I do is is to get recovery into my into my life is I think how can I do it with my girls <laughs> so you know a lot of the time um, I will go to the pool because I think there's a, a lot that we can take away from removing gravity from our body so um, you know with what I want to do in the future uh, I want to introduce flotation tanks into what I do um, I know Hobart has, I think, two places that has them. I'd love to get there. <laughs> I'd love to get there, but unfortunately, I can't. So I like. Well, what's the next best thing? So going to the pool is the next best thing to take gravity off your joints, allow the space to come back into the joints, um, allow the body, you know, doing movements within the waters to upregulate the lymphatic system, to remove toxins, increase oxygenated blood to areas. My kids don't know what I'm doing. They think I'm just being silly with them. But I'm, you know, I'm floating around in the pool on noodles, you know, allowing them to jump and have fun in the pool. But 
I've got a purpose for being there as well. Mm. So I'm giving them what they need, but I'm also giving myself what I need. So, you know, or going down to the beach um, and grounding ourselves on the sand and, you know, getting that connection back again, you know, that, and then floating in the salt water and that sort of thing. Um, I haven't quite yet built up the courage of my girls to with the waves and so forth. So the <laughs> trips to the beach aren't as, uh, as um, frequent as I'd like, but, yeah, definitely the pool. Um and I, I look at what I can do at home as well. Like I'm fortunate that you know I've had experience with whole body vibration, and I've worked with that. Yeah. What can you describe what this is? Because this is a bit newer, I think, mm. for me, and I'm sure many of the listeners as well. So whole body vibration. Um, I'm I'm pretty sure I'm right here in that it was developed by NASA um, for astronauts. Yeah. Right. In space, because in space there's no. Hang on, let me get this right. There's no mass. No, there's mass, there's no weight or something like that. Anyway, um, to apply force to the human body so that there's not muscle loss or bone loss, um, they came up with this idea of 3D vibration. So a plate oscillating up and down, side to side and forward to back. And that three-dimensional vibration is an acceleration, accelerational force on the body. Mm-hmm. And it actually, if you think of the force equation, force equals mass times acceleration, if there's no mass because there's no gravity, well, there's no weight because there's no gravity, then how can you dial force into the body? And that's by increasing acceleration. Oh, now, I see. So you might be thinking, listening to this, okay, well, you're applying force to the body. How's that recovery? There's different ways since developing that technology that we've found that you know, has effects on the body. So from a recovery perspective, we can think of it as a really advanced massage. So there's different frequencies that you can set the vibration um, that either upregulate, like I said before, the lymphatic drainage, depending on where you place your body and what movements you're doing, um, and you know brings oxygenated blood to those areas. So there's massive recovery benefits from just doing that. And is that from post like would you use it post hard exercise with you or a client or could you also use this when it came, comes to talking about recovery from soft tissue or other injury oh yeah yeah so it's amazing um the applications for it so during a training session we might use it as a recovery station ah. so um you know you might do interval sessions and one station is whole body vibration. You just lie on it in a certain position depending on what we're working and allow the body to recover while someone else is at another station. Or you do it afterwards as a flush. So you just flush the system. Feet, calves, quads, hammies, you work your way up the body, allow the... And how long would that session of recovery take? Uh, at max, you wouldn't stay on the power plate any longer than 20 minutes. Okay. But... Um, you know, I've got a little portable one at this stage because at the moment um, that's all I can really use at home. I haven't got the bigger bigger permanent plates, but you know, I'd spend a minute at a time on certain areas. That's all you really need. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so it's quite quick, hmm. quick and easy. And then, um, yeah, and I, I even use it for um, preparation. Mm. So the other aspect, um, one of the other, there's three aspects of using whole body vibration. One is strength. So as I spoke before about applying force to the body. So for people who have arthritis or osteo problems who can't maybe lift weights, we can apply acceleration to the body so they still have that ability to um, produce muscle mass and increase their bone yeah, density. Yeah, okay. Um, so there's a population there that could really benefit from whole body vibration. Um and I use it also for mobilization. 
so um, exciting in the body's tissues um, to increase range of motion. Again, I speak about bringing oxygenated blood to certain areas. You know, that's going to bring warmth. It's going to bring the, the cells of that area the nutrients they need. Um, and coupled with mobilisation, um, you know, can really set the body up for a really good session. So rather than spending 15 minutes doing my warm-up, I could halve that and do my mobilisation on the power plate to upregulate what I'm doing. Mm. So that's, it's been a valuable that's tool. That's really fascinating. Yeah, I'd love to give it a whirl at some stage. Um, the other night too, when we were talking about recovery and also when looking at the five stressors you mentioned, yep. um, there was movement, nutrition, hydration, emotion and rest. And so you identify with your clients and with yourself where do you sit on each of those five stressors? Yeah. When you came to the hydration one, you were talking about the difference between bonded and unbonded hydration. Yeah. And when I came away from your place that evening, I guess I that was one thing that kind of stuck in my mind is like not really understanding what you were what you were on about there. So can you talk about hydration for you, what it is, how you go about it? Yeah, uh, just to back on, I, I, that night when I was saying um, bound hydration and unbound hydration, I was like, I bet Johanny's probably wondering what this is, but we've already spoken about 30 other topics. I'm going <laughs> to yeah. delve into what this yeah. is. Yeah, oh man, I wish I'd had my notebook <laughs> at the time. It was, yeah, it was a really rich night. I've, so amazing. this concept of bound and unbound hydration. So when pe- people drink, you know, let's say you drink water, and you're, you're just sitting there at your office desk and you're drinking water and you're thinking, I'm hydrated, I drank, you know, the recommended you know, intake is maybe 2.5 litres a day, um, I've easily drunk that, I must be hydrated. But what people don't realise is, um, you know, the body's cells, they need movement to actually sort of push this water in, into, the, into the cells, into your tissues. If you're sitting there drinking your water effectively what you're doing is is going to the toilet more times than than not Mm. i mean yes you are getting some hydration and you're obviously going to be in a better condition than if you weren't drinking at all but when you're when you drink and you don't move it's you're you're not getting the the needed fluid into your tissues Mm. to then create a really good slide and glide within the fascial myofascial tissues so think of it um like a wet sponge so if um, if you've got a wet sponge and you're moving and your body's and I'm, I guess people in the podcast can't see me with my hands here, but <laughs> yeah, you know, if you're moving, you're sort of squeezing that sponge and then moving in another direction. The sponge opens up and it absorbs all the other nutrients around. It's new nutrients and fluid, and then you move again and it squishes in and you know flushes out any of the toxins that have been built up. Yeah. Allows itself to then suck more um, fluid in. So that that's bound hydration. So it's when you drink and then move and that movement is a pumping action. yeah i so i i can completely understand that so just then in practical terms when you come back from say training for yourself are you focusing on rehydration during times of movement whether that's like working with the girls or play activities with the girls or doing your whole body vibration is that correct yeah so it can be as simple as just walking around while I'm while I'm sipping. Okay. And I'm not gulping. Yeah. Um, you know, you need body. You need to allow the body time for that. This water, you know, your water and, and fluids to be absorbed. So, any movement. Okay. So yeah, when I finish a training session, 
you know, often I have to get in the car and drive. So yeah, you're sipping and getting your fluids back in there. But when I'm at home, you know, I might be on the floor sitting, but I'm doing activation movements. Um, maybe doing more dynamic. I don't want to call them dynamic stretches, but I'm trying to think of a way to actually describe it for people. But doing movements that um, mean my joints and muscles are. So it's like an active recovery. Yeah, state. it is an active recovery. Yeah, state, but it's not. It's not physically strenuous or anything like yeah. that. It's physically just moving. Moving. While you're sipping water, yeah. And so then what about nutrition? Because also, too, I'm guessing the transition from the stair running into the trail world and more endurance-based sports will have changed both your approach to sports nutrition but also recovery and lifestyle. Does it? Yeah, where, where are you on nutrition, lifestyle and sports? Yeah, with the stair climbing, I mean, we were predominantly using anaerobic or you know, ATP, PC um, energy system. So Without oxygen. Without oxygen. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, the longer races, yes, you'd start to... I mean, you're always using all, all the energy systems, but, you know, you'd be dialing up depending on the length of the race. But, you know, you didn't have to worry so much about nutrition on the day, um, you know, providing your stores were, were full. I guess is one way of putting it. Um, you know, you essentially you were right. Uh, but yeah, coming into trail running now, um, I've just you know I came into the store you know when I first got here and and saw the gels and you know I'd, I'd seen them around. I'd been the triathlons triathlon scene for a little bit and you know I saw people gels and all this and I started playing around with my own um, natural um, sort of energy sources. Um, this was back when I was in the stair climbing. Um, uh, well, you know, whether or not it had an effect, you know, your race is that short, I didn't know. But I'd started sort of thinking about nutrition, but it wasn't a big, wasn't a big component. Um, but yeah, now coming into trail running um, and reading, or I, I listened to the podcast by, is it Darren, Daryl Griffiths? Daryl Griffiths, yeah. yeah. So that He's was been a, a massive mentor for me. I opened yeah. for me because, you know, I was going out um, trail running and I had this crappy old running belt that someone had given to me for Christmas ages ago and didn't know about these fancy packs and these um, little drinks that you could carry on your chest and you know I thought well I've got to do something here because I can feel myself dra being drained when I'm out on the trails so you know I got myself a, a running pack or vest water vest whatever you call them um, and yeah read the read the book after I listened to the podcasts uh, from Daryl and thought, okay, well, let's let's give this a go. So I haven't done an official sweat test yet, and I'm wanting to do that. Um, but I have started experimenting with um, sodium and the tablets, and also my energy forms when I am running. And I went from there was there was a, quite a significant point when I was running without sodium, and then I went for a run with sodium and. Um, I felt completely different. Like okay. I noticed, I, I noticed the difference. Yeah. Um, and I was like, right, this is this is something else I need to focus on now and include as part of my nutrition um, aspect. Yeah. With my training. It it is absolutely, I think, life changing for athletes who want to go into the longer distances to actually wrap their heads around recovery uh, and sports nutrition because particularly with sports nutrition, like you can have the best training in the world and the best recovery in the world. But if you mess up nutrition, it's like 
um, it's like wasted in, like it's a waste of energy. Mm. It's like it's a free energy that you can tap into when you're out there, other than the dollars that it costs to buy <laughs> the resources. But but I honestly do think that the difference when it comes to particularly the longer distances and especially over the 50 kilometer mark mm. is that um, the athletes who will perform on race day are the ones who can nail their nutrition. Yeah. Um, and, and I know that from the distances that I've run, but I'm still toying with this idea as to how much and when I introduce my nutrition because my focus is on sort of 10 to 18 kilometre trail runs. You know, I'm looking at doing these within under the hour. So, oh, it's not the 18Ks, obviously, but in trail running. But, you know, if we think of the Australian mountain running champs that are coming up there, it's 10, just over 10K. Um, and you know the good guys should be doing this in around 53 55 minutes so it's sort of under that hour you know and then you start thinking okay do I increase my weight in you know if I'm talking about power to weight ratio because we're running up you know do I take with me nutrition do I take with me water yeah or do I I think for those shorter I mean this is my own opinion on this but for those shorter distances you can probably get away without needing the hydration element as long as, you know, you've talked about bonded hydration, like you've gone through the motions before you actually get Mm. to the event. But for something when you know it works, and we're talking about the glucose element now, if you know that works, I would say what's the harm in using it? Mm. Um, And I personally have used uh, gels in 10K road races, which take me, you know, well, used to, um, under 35 minutes. And I would have a gel before I started and a gel during the event. And I don't think it hurts because you're in those intensities, your brains and your central nervous system is working overtime mm. to take you through the motions. And you add a trail in there, which is going to be potentially rough, rocky, slippery, depending on the conditions. Like you're fueling your central nervous system mm. and you're only going to be heightening your ability for the body to tap into its fat stores because the brain is the thing that allows that process to occur. Mm. So I sort of got to the, like I reasoned for a very long time and I was quite stubborn about this as well. But then I finally got to the point where I was like, what is the harm? <laughs> you know, if it helps, great. That's, you know, that's an extra 1% in the kitty. And if it doesn't, it's not like glucose is going to do me any harm out there. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of where I reached. Yeah, and I think I'm heading to that point as well. Like I like I said before, I physically felt the difference yeah. between having nutrition with me when I'm running and when I don't. And actually, like even the point, the pinnacle, which I entered in you know, last month or the month before, and you know, I had a, a gel with, with caffeine in it, and, I was, and I've not been one for caffeine. Um, throughout my entire life but I was like when I after I'd taken that I was like I felt superhuman yeah (laughs) it was really weird but I was like oh I took that at the right time because you know starting up just after fern trees when I took it and I was like oh man this is awesome and I was off yeah because then you're you've not just got the energy but you've got this stimulant yeah the the risk with caffeine is if we take it too early we're running on a stimulant (laughs) and then you burn bridges later on but if you time them to perfection yeah um amazing and for those people who are sort of listening into this part of the podcast today is we've just done a podcast on nutrition hydration i've just done one with jess there's another one out there with daryl griffiths and he's about to come back on the podcast soon to to go into more depths and details on this I'll be listening in. (laughs) Thanks, Chris.
So, Chris, just quickly, like lifestyle nutrition, do you, I mean, obviously now there's a really strong amount of marketing around different schools of thought when it comes to lifestyle nutrition, like ketogenics becoming a bigger topic, paleo has been a big topic, gluten-free is out there, um, plant-based is out there. Do you buy into any of these? Not that that's a negative, um, just curious, do you buy into any of them or do you have your own school of thought? Um, I don't buy into any of them. Um, to be honest, you know, I, I prepare our meals for my for my daughters and my wife, and I just make sure that they get a variety of healthy foods, and mm. that's essentially it. So, um, you know, I've got that many things to think about. The last thing I want to do is, am I following a particular diet correctly? It's mm. like stuff that, you know, yeah. leave that for someone else who's got more time. Um, you know, just making sure I'm getting as least processed food as possible and putting meals on the table for my girls and snacks that um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy and comfortable with the meeting. And I have this idea that whatever I eat, my girls can eat. So it means that I've got to be careful about what I eat because um, I don't want them seeing me eating certain things. And so I've had to make a few changes or if I do have an indulgent thing I make till they're in bed but <laughs> uh yeah that, that's my philosophy towards nutrition is my girls eat what I eat and therefore I just provide them with with what I think is going to make them grow into strong healthy women yeah and then you talked about um sleep as being one of the one of the check-ins that you have with your clients. So you you talked to me the other night about when your client when a client comes to you ready to do a session, you just check in on these fundamental basics and it was um, what had their movements patterns been? What was their nutrition like? What's their hydration been like? How were they feeling emotionally and rest which you put down to to for them in simple terms sleep. Mm. So just you know how important I mean I think we all know sleep is important but have you been able to put any numbers into how much you need as a person or um, the quality? I'm just curious to know what you know about sleep. Yeah, look, I know probably know the basics about it. I haven't looked too much into it, but I know for myself that um, if I get an interrupted sleep, then I can quite easily um, carry out my day in, with, with six hours of sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we'd always like more. But I know from a training perspective and then the other duties that I have um, as a stay-at-home dad that I can get away with six hours of sleep. Um, For my clients, I refer to it as sleep because often that's what they think recovery is. And no offence to to a lot of people, but often recovery isn't something that's thought of otherwise. Yeah, I agree. Um, so it's just an easy way. Like, you know, if people do recovery but have bad sleep, then that's probably going to trump the recovery that they've done anyway. So mm. it was just an easy way to tap into how rested they were in a way that it was just language that they could understand. How was my sleep last night and therefore how, how do I feel mm-hmm. today? And, you know, you speak about the sleep aspect and other aspects of the stresses and Previously, you asked about, you know, what's my training program look like? The reason why we ask about these stresses is because regardless of what training program we have, you know, if the person's not recovered or in a state where they're able to um, fulfill those training requirements of that day, then what's the use of of doing Doing it? it. So um, that's where I have, like I said before, I know I've got 
training programs and I'll wake up and assess how I am and then I'll determine whether or not it's it's fitting for me to do that today. Is it going to be to my detriment if I do this or is it actually, am I, on, am I in a state that this is actually going to benefit me? So yeah, looking at my readiness to, to train is a big one. And so wanting to get a bit further towards wrapping up today, there was one quote, you, you actually brought it up the other night when we were just simply chatting to one another and then I read it again in some of the material that you sent through to me, some articles that have been written and also, um, and we'll get to this, your proposed, am I allowed to talk about your proposed business concepts yeah, or your, yeah. Yeah, your career yeah. down here? So, and the, the quote was, you can't have emotion without motion. Uh, I just want, could you describe what you mean by that? Yeah, I can. And I'll just say at this point that that's not something that I've created. Um, that's come from a mentor of mine um, and it's come from a lot of tools that I've got from PTA Global and Rodney Korn so, and Ian O'Dwyer. So I do need to mention those guys because uh, a lot of the stuff that I have learned has come from them and then I've just applied it to, to what I do. But they have this concept that you can't have motion without emotion. Um, and it's just uh, talking about the fact that our physical and mental um, is completely intertwined. They're not separate. So um, we're talking before about you know the everything that we do is stress, whether it's mental or, or physical. Um, you know, our, our physical posture can have a massive effect on our mental health. Um, you know, simply just standing up and opening up your chest. Um, often can have an amazing effect on your mental aspect straight away. Or if you start to round your shoulders and come a little bit more kyphotic, you'll find that your mental posture, uh, mental state will probably tend towards a little bit more of the negative side. So all of that, that it's stating is that, you know, whatever you do, there's going to be a physical and mental effect regardless. So, you know, you might be training really hard, um, and you know, recovering really well, but mentally things aren't going so well for you. That mental stress is going to have a physical effect on your body, um, and vice versa. So it's understanding maybe where you fit on the spectrum of things, but um, yeah, emotion can really affect your physical um, performance, and your physical performance can affect your emotion. Yeah. So you can't have one without the other. And that's exactly what I feel like I've come to really understand, especially in the last couple of years. I was listening a lot to some podcasts by a guy that I absolutely love listening to called Michael Gervais, um, who's a sports psychologist in America. His podcast, Finding Mastery, is absolutely brilliant. But I was listening to one in particular with one of the very elite American volleyball players, and they were talking quite strongly about how you have to really work on that sense of self and this concept of understanding yourself, particularly in times of emotion, before you can really go about building performance or, you know, physical and then performance on top of that. So it's sort of almost like a pyramid, they see. And if, yeah, you don't have the strong foundation, the performance can be pretty shaky and a bit hit and miss. Um, and I, I really do, like, when I look back on my own journey and also the journey over the last couple of years really, really come to believe in that quite strongly. Mm. Um, and I also think that emotion gets quite stored in the body. Oh, it doesn't yeah. just affect it. I think it stores. Yeah. The body know. has an amazing ability to, you know, to store 
emotional stress and often it comes out in physical forms. Um, you know, in one of the practices or therapies that I do, sometimes we have this thing where people go limbic. So um, there's, a, there's a mental or emotional stress or something's happened in their life and the body's storing that pain. They don't know about it, but they're storing that pain physically somewhere. And if we get to a point where we're releasing that area sometimes they can go limbic and and it all just comes flooding back so best ways you know sometimes people don't know but they're getting a massage or or they're having trigger point therapy or, or something done and all of a sudden this emotion just comes over them and they start crying they're sobbing they don't know what's going on often we you know it's the limbic system going into overdrive because this stored up emotional stress is physically coming out of out of the body so that's fascinating yeah oh so can you tell me then about where you're you like we talked about earlier you've been working in graphic design and it sounds like you've done a full circle through the world of personal <laughs> training movement coaching now getting into the neurokinetics yep. um where is this leading to for you then <clears throat> in terms of a career especially down here in tasmania yeah, so the move to Hobart, um, I guess, presented itself with um, a chance for me to, to get back into to a profession. And since becoming a stay-at-home dad um, and allowing my wife to, to focus on her, um, her career, um, it's given me a chance to, I guess, think about what I want to do. And also, now that I know what I want to do, spend the time to build... Um, yeah, my tool belt. So um, you speak about patience. This has been a, a very patient wait for this to happen. But 2019, I'm hoping to open up a studio in, in Hobart um, called the Hobart Performance Centre. And it's going to be um, predominantly a tissue recovery and tissue preparation centre. So it's taking everything that I've learnt as an athlete. So Everything that I know and everything that I do in my profession now has first and foremost been applied to myself. It's the only reason I follow something. If it, if it works for me and I've seen perform, my performance increase or my recovery increase, then I'm like, right, there's, there's somewhere for this in my repertoire. And I want to take everything that I've learnt from when I have been an athlete with the way I train and the way I approach recovery um, and then allow people to experience in, in my center. So um, I think it's unique in what I'm providing. Um, I think recovery is something that's not, uh, or even preparation. So even if we don't use the word recovery, um, I'll just use the word preparation. You know, once you've finished a training recession, you need to do something to prepare yourself for the next session. So let's call it preparation because sometimes recovery, people don't like that word. <laughs> um, but a center that is focused on, yeah. Um, becoming more efficient in your movement, um, a chance for you to experience recovery that you, you may not have otherwise had access to so that you can get out and do what you love doing best. Yeah. Love it. More of it, more frequently. Yeah. And yeah. I don't, I don't, I'm not one to say, look, I, I'm not going to diagnose people. I'm not a physio. Um, you know, I have my limitations and I'll have networks to refer out to, but this will be a centre to get people back into a shape where they can go and enjoy or go do their PT session without without pain or without... And fatigue. as we talked about the other evening, 
this isn't just for the elitist of athletes. This is for everyone. Oh, this is for everyone, yeah. I want I want recovery to be something that's seen as, as accessible for, for any person. So, you know, I know from a stay-at-home dad, I'd love to just have some time away, um, just jump on the power plate, have a flush, feel revitalised and, and get back out. So um, this is for anyone. I want, it, I want recovery to be in preparation um, of the body's tissues to be accessible to anyone. And... Um, yeah, I'm, I'm so passionate about it, um, and you know we've been talking for a while now, but I could keep talking about it. Um, so yeah, I, I can't wait, and I'd love to start it tomorrow, but again, I've got to be patient and just wait till the time's right. Brilliant. There is so much more I could also talk about, but I am aware of the time and I'm aware of your time away from the kids to do the podcast today. So like I think, on behalf of everyone listening, like I just want to thank you. I'm quite quite candidly I want to thank you um and for also the evening that I had with you the other night because I I really did come away quite inspired so I hope that we can see the center up and running in Mm. a year's time ish no no pressure there but I I think what you're bringing to not just Tasmania and Hobart but also to the broader industry um in the sports of endurance trail running and the stair running community from which you've had a massive career in Um, I think that you really can make a big difference for a lot of us. So thank you. No, thank you, honey. It's been great.